Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. Thank you so much for all the great feedback that you've given us on our Twisted Scripture series. Amy and I have really enjoyed it, and it seems like you listeners have too. So before we get started tonight on our our last episode of our Twisted Scripture series, we wanted to take the time to read off a couple of comments that our listeners have sent in. So this first one is, um, I really like her handle. It's called from from Roman to Reformed is her handle, and she she left us a five star um, review on iTunes, and this was her comment. Ah. She said, "Thank you for your ministry and podcast. I've been saved by the grace of God in this past year. Yay! Wow, that's um, great. Yeah, I was a Roman Catholic, and through several podcasts, including yours, when I heard the truth, I just knew. You know when you hear the truth." I had no idea I was in a false religion and an unbiblical religion. I now realize why I felt like I did all those years in the Catholic faith, lost on a hamster wheel of works. Thank you for all you do. Soli Deo Gloria. Wow. We are just really praising the Lord with you. That is so great. Welcome to the family. And we're glad we could help welcome you in with our um, episodes on Catholicism. Yeah, welcome, uh, sister. We really appreciate that. And if any of you missed the episodes that Roman is talking about, uh, just go to our website, a awordfitlyspoken.life, and you can just put uh, the word Catholic in the search bar and you'll find that episode. Uh, we are getting a lot of new subscribers on our YouTube channel. And uh, last week's episode, Twisted Scripture Part 1, inspired Lisa to leave us a comment. She writes, Thank you, ladies, for setting me straight on this. Great teaching. Thank you, Lisa. And uh, another comment is from CG Smith 22 over on iTunes. And she also left us a five-star review. And her comment is also short and sweet. Wonderful, godly message, she writes. So thank you, CG. And we hope that you'll all help us to get the sound doctrine of a word fitly spoken out to more people who might need to hear it by leaving us a five-star review, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, an encouraging comment on your favorite podcast platform. Yes, please do. Well, tonight, like I said, is part three of our Twisted Scripture series. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to parts one and two, be sure and go back and catch those first two episodes in order, because in part two, we touch back a little bit to part one. And tonight in part three, we're going to touch back a little bit to part two. So you want to have all that information in your mind as we're as we're talking tonight. So last week, we looked at Matthew 7, 1, which is judge not lest you be judged. Uh, Galatians three twenty eight. there is neither June or Greek, slave nor free, no male and no female. Malachi 3, 8 through 10, that's the tithing passage, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans for you. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, part of the church discipline passage. If your brother sins against you, go and, go and show him his fault in private. And then Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's right. And we took each of those passages, described to you how they're usually twisted, and then we put them back in their proper context so that you could see what they really mean. And I think we've all seen that what God really meant by each each of these passages is so much better than any sort of uh, twisting sinful humans can dream up. So once again tonight, we are going to follow the admonition of 2 Timothy 2.15. And it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And just as an added bonus, let's talk a little bit about the context of this verse. Second Timothy, along with First Timothy and Titus, are called the pastoral epistles. They are letters from Paul, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, to Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus. And they are instructions to them and to all pastors about how to lead the church and what it means to be a good pastor. So the instruction in Second Timothy 2.15 to be an approved worker who rightly handles scripture was primarily given to Timothy and pastors, but how do we know it also applies to us? 
Yeah, it's a great question to consider. You know, some of our listeners could be thinking back to last week's episode and what I said about Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I said that that verse didn't apply to us directly as New Testament Christians because it was written to the Israelites in exile. When we read that passage, I said, you know, we're reading somebody else's mail. So why aren't we reading somebody else's mail when we as women and non-pastors read the pastoral epistles? Yeah, well, one big difference is that Jeremiah 29.11 is in the Old Testament under the old Mosaic Covenant. So uh, while most of the underlying principles apply to Christians, many of the particular promises do not. But the New Testament was written specifically to and for Christians under the New Covenant of Grace. Also, when we read uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, and we assume it means that God is promising us prosperity or a problem-free f- uh, future, we run into two red flags. The Bible and real life experience. All of the verses in the Bible talk about suffering and persecution for Christians, and it contradicts the idea that God is promising us smooth sailing, right? Uh, plus, our real life experience tells us that that isn't true because we all suffer and have things go wrong in our life. But there are no Bible passages or real life experiences that conflict with 2 Timothy 2.15. Nothing in the Bible says it's okay for people who aren't pastors to mishandle God's word. And nothing in our life experience teaches us that either. Yeah, and another reason we can know that 2 Timothy 2.15 applies to us, even though it was specifically written to pastors, is simple logic. I mean, think about everything you know about God and his word. Does it make any sense in light of who God is and how he operates according to scripture that he would instruct only pastors to rightly handle his word? Does God want non-pastors to handle his word sloppily or take it out of context or twist it? Well, of course not. God gave this instruction to pastors to rightly handle the word, not because they're the only ones he wants to rightly handle the word, but because they're to set an example for us and teach us how to rightly handle the word. We are to learn from our pastors how to do that. Yes, that's right. And I think that looking at 2 Timothy 2.15 like this is really a good teaching moment because we can take those hermeneutical or Bible interpretation principles and apply them to other passages in the future. When a passage is addressed to someone besides Christian women or Christians in general, how do we know whether or not it applies to us today? So let's just quickly hit those principles of interpretation again. Is the passage in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? Are there other passages of Scripture that clearly disprove my interpretation of the passage? Does real-life experience clearly and directly disprove my interpretation of the passage? Does my interpretation of the passage make sense in light of what Scripture tells us about who God is and how he operates? So these are all great questions to ask yourself as you're seeking to rightly and unashamedly handle God's word. They certainly are, and I'm sure we'll be applying all of those and more, at least implicitly, as we move on to some other verses. Yes. So, so ladies, grab your Bibles and let's get to work. The first twisted scripture I want to tackle tonight is in Matthew 18. Now, a little bit of a spoiler alert. Many of you are already aware, and I think I already mentioned tonight, that Matthew 18, specifically verses 15 through 20, is the go-to passage for church discipline. And Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is twisted and misunderstood in so many ways that we probably could have done a whole twisted scripture series just on that one passage. Last week, Amy helped us to get verse 15 straightened out. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, that one's usually trotted out and abused in defense of a false teacher who's been publicly called out. You know, they'll say, oh, you're not supposed to publicly call out false teaching. You're supposed to go to that guy privately, which, like Amy taught us last week, is not what this passage says or means. 
Well, this week, I'm going to address verse 20 of Matthew 18, which is twisted in a different way from verse 15, even though they're both in the same passage about church discipline. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, there are two ways this verse tends to be twisted. The first is, God is here with us at our prayer meeting. We're gathered here to pray. God is with us here. So that's the first way. The second way it's twisted is a way that I really hadn't heard of until maybe the last few months, but it seems to be catching on, unfortunately. And that is this, you know, two or three of us are gathered at a coffee shop or somebody's house for Bible study. God's with us. We're a church or we're a biblical substitute for going to church. Now, there's some truth to both of those twistings, but Matthew 18, 20 is not teaching that God is with you in your prayer meeting or that your gathering of two to three people is a church. Let's read Matthew 18, 15 through 20 to see what it really means. Here we go. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I, there am I among them. So in context, you can tell this gathering of two or three isn't about a prayer meeting, and it isn't about a substitute for going to church. This is about dealing with issues of sin in the church. The real meaning of verse 20 starts actually back in verse 18. Actually, it's in the whole passage, but more directly in verse 18, which, by the way, and I hope you can see from the context, verse 18 has nothing to do with this blasphemous New Apostolic Reformation practice that you've probably heard, you know, I bind you, Satan, you have no place here, or I'm binding this sickness so it has no more power over you, that kind of thing. It has nothing to do with that. So don't let that verse get twisted on you either. Um, but as far as what it what it actually means, I think the study notes in my MacArthur Study Bible explain verses 18 through 20 really well, and probably a lot more briefly than I could. So I'm just going to read to you what it says. This is from the ESV MacArthur Study Bible, pages 1389 and 1392. So this is what it says about verse 18. Quote, Any duly constituted body of believers acting in accord with God's word has the authority to declare if someone is forgiven or unforgiven. The church's authority is not to determine these things, but to declare the judgment of heaven based on the principles of the word. When they make such judgments on the basis of God's word, they can be sure heaven is in accord, unquote. In other words, if you're conducting church discipline according to scripture, you can be assured that God in heaven is in agreement with what you're doing and the decisions that you're making because he already said so in his written word. Here's what it says on verse 19, quote, the quote, two of you spoken here, spoken of here, harks back to the two or three witnesses involved in step two of the discipline process, unquote. In other words, that verse 16, if the person sinning refuses to listen to you alone, take two or three others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you could see where that two or three in verse 20 is, is coming from. It's coming from the people who confront the sinner in verses 16 and 19. And here's what it says about verse 20. Quote, Jewish tradition requires at least 10 men to constitute a synagogue or even hold public prayer. Here, Christ promises to be present in the midst of an even smaller flock, two or three witnesses gathered in his name for the purpose of discipline. So where two or three are gathered is about God affirming the biblical process of church discipline and leading those making the decisions in the case according to his word. Now, I did say that there are some nuggets of truth in those twistings that I mentioned, but those nuggets of truth are taught by other passages, not this one. So you might think, well, 
Is God present with us at our prayer meeting? Well, of course, but for two reasons that aren't taught by Matthew 18, 20. First of all, God is omnipresent. That means from eternity past to eternity future, he's present everywhere all the time, which is also why you can't properly say, hey, God really showed up at church today. God has never in the history of ever showed up somewhere because he has always been there. So he is omnipresent. Listen to Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10. These are the verses you're looking for for your prayer meeting and for yourself too, not Matthew 18, 20. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So first, God is with you at your prayer meeting because he's omnipresent. Second, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. So you don't even need two or three gathered. God is with you even when you're alone. Listen to 1 Corinthians 619. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay. And then lastly, is gathering with two to three people a church or a biblical substitute for going to church? Well, it can be if one of those two to three people is a biblically qualified pastor who's preaching the word to you and you're praying and singing and giving and you're observing the Lord's Supper and baptism, you're evangelizing, you're growing, you're looking to appoint more elders. Basically, you're conducting yourself and structuring yourself like a church according to scripture. But three gals in a coffee shop studying the Bible every Tuesday morning, that's a great thing. But it's not a church, and it's not a biblical substitute for being a faithful, invested member of a doctrinally sound local church. Amy, any thoughts? Well, amen and amen. And I love the Bible verses that uh, you beautifully shared. Uh, those are those are just my favorites. It, it's a great reminder that, yes, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity resides in us. So really, there he is among us, right? Even if, like you said, there are only two or just me. You know, we often hear, or I do, I don't know about you, Michelle, but I often hear this uh, said maybe at the beginning of uh, a worship singing set uh, time in church or in a group prayer, something like, Holy Spirit, we invite you here, yes. or we we invite your presence down. You know, he's already here, and he right. isn't waiting for you to hail him like a cab in New Jersey. So we just have to stop <laughs> thinking like that, because when we get the proper perspective of God, that changes everything, and that puts those verses uh, right back in context and untwists them. So that's right. anyway, that's my thought. <laughs> um, all right, my turn, I guess. Here's a, a Another verse that is often twisted, and uh, I wanted to go to this one, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And uh, this is um, so this is one that personally just gets me. It, it's a beautiful verse that stresses the importance of surrounding your child with the love of God and the truth of his word. You know, uh, back in Deuteronomy 6, uh, it, it has God explaining to Moses that these truths should be talked about uh, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and get up. And he even instructed the Israelites to tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, which they did. Uh, you'll write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. And we don't maybe do that today, but we do want to surround our children with God's love. We want our children to know God himself and how to please him and obey him. But oftentimes that uh, Proverbs verse is misunderstood or um, misapplied by well-meaning people, maybe even ourselves, maybe we've done that. You know, people have believed that if their child strays or rebels, that eventually the child will have to come back because God promises this. But is that true? What if he or she doesn't come back? Does this mean that God doesn't keep his promises? So the parents will then become disillusioned because they read this verse uh, to be a guarantee or a promise, which it is not. Ladies, think of Proverbs as more of uh, standalone nuggets of wisdom, you know, observations on life from uh, King Solomon. And uh, these kind of help set us in the right direction. 
Uh, the other implication, if you think about it like that, is that if you do a great job in teaching your child about God, he or she will be saved because of your teaching. That's kind of the conclusion many of us are going to draw from that. And this puts the onus on your shoulders to have the power to save and you don't. I don't care how good your teaching is. You don't save anyone. And then on the flip side, and this is kind of where I had to take this to heart one time, um, even if you have a godly home and you've taught him well, you know, you can't blame yourself if your child rebels. And that that's a huge burden too. But think about this. God saves children out of faithless families all the time with unbelieving parents. God is sovereign. He saves kids out of completely dark circumstances. And so uh, we just have to put that in his hands. Michelle, any thoughts on that? Yeah, this is another area like we've talked about before, where when you misunderstand or you twist the scripture, it can really cause a lot of pain and anxiety for, um, for, for godly parents who are doing their best and then their child becomes a prodigal when, when he leaves home. Or, you know, it, it could be a number of things. I've always heard, um, that we need to consider the Proverbs as sort of a general rule of thumb, like a general truth that mostly applies, but there are some exceptions. And so, um, so that's, that could be how we could look at this verse is it's a general rule of thumb that if you raise your child to know the Lord and, you know, hopefully your child will make a profession of faith and it'll be a genuine profession of faith and, and he'll actually be saved. Uh, and he will continue to walk with the Lord all of his life. But we, you know, there are so many parents out there that have done their absolute best. And they, like I said, you know, have a prodigal when the, the child grows up and strays away from home or, or leaves the faith or whatever, or re- I should say reveals himself to never have been in the faith in the first place, because we know First John 2.19 says that if they leave, they were never in in the first place. Um, but we've also, you know, another category is parents who don't, they're not saved. They, and they don't get saved until much later in life when their job of parenting is over. And I've, I've heard from many moms who despair that, you know, I didn't get saved until I was 40 or 50 and my kids were already out of the house. And now what do I do? They're not, they're not living for the Lord. They're not saved. They don't know him. What, you know, it's just very, it's really heartbreaking. And, and so we, you know, we always have to trust the Lord that he knows our circumstances. He knows our hearts. He knows, he knows when we get saved, you know, because he's the one who saves us and, and he saves us in his timing. And so we've really got to leave this kind of thing with the Lord and be as, you know, be saved and be as obedient as we can to him with our parenting and with everything else uh, once yeah. we are saved. So. Yeah, and I, I know that he knows that we make mistakes. You know, we, we all yes. think back on those times when we were raising our kids thinking, oh, if only I had said this, or if only I yes. hadn't, you know, done this. I was a horrible witness to my child, you know, that kind of thing. And you, you live with guilt, and that, that guilt is not to be yours because, uh, you know, and I had a friend uh, lovingly exhort me on this one, too, kind of giving me a little kick in the pants. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's not on us. We are not the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, we can do our best. We can repent. We can even explain to our child, you know, way back when, remember that, uh, uh, you know, I, I should have said it this way and I'm really sorry, but I mean, that's all you can do. That's right there. And just remember, you know, any of you moms out there, I know that you agonize over that kind of thing. There's grace. God is a God of grace and mercy. He is not, you know, he's not sitting up there just waiting for you to mess up one more time and then going, oh, that's, you know, that's 49 mess ups. Okay, her kid's not going to be saved and he's going to be a prodigal. So that's just it. You know, God knows you and he loves you and he's got grace and mercy for you. So if you, you know, we have all sent the best Christian parent, you know, that you look up to with all that you have. That is not a perfect parent. That per- that parent right. has sinned, and that pers- that parent has had to repent, and we all have. And so, just throw yourself on the grace and mercy of Christ. He is rich in grace and mercy, and stands ready to forgive you. And then be forgiven and move on. So, Amen. We could, that, that's we could probably comforting. talk about that all night. <laughs> 
We could. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad for his grace and mercy. Me too. Well, now favorite of athletes, coffee mugs and Christian kitsch of every size and shape. Let's <laughs> straighten out Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which actually ah, yes. is a phenomenal little verse, but that's that's another coffee mug one that we see all the time. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm sure we've all seen the little meme on social media, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so we're going to see why or how this is usually taken out of context and then we're going to stick it right back in its context and talk about what it actually means. So, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This does not mean you can jump off a building and defeat the law of gravity because God's going to help you fly. You know, all things means all things, right? This does not mean that just because you love Jesus, you can win American Idol even though you can't carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> this verse is not a rallying cry to win the game for Christian football players. What does it mean? Well, this one is super easy to see in context. Actually, most of the ones we've done have been pretty easy to see what they mean in context. So let's look at the context of this. We always start off by setting the scene, right? Okay, so it's in Philippians. So Philippians is a letter from Paul breathed out by God to the church at Philippi. So he's writing to a specific church about specific issues and experiences they had shared. Um, and in, in chapter four, he's winding things down and getting ready to sign off. So let's hear what he has to say in verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So basically, Paul is saying here, I really appreciate that you Philippians, you wanted to help me out and support me. And I totally understand the circumstances that were going on, you know, surrounding that. I just want you to know that in all things, whatever happens to me, whatever situation God puts me in, whether that's poverty or wealth, hunger or plenty of food, abundance or neediness, whatever, I'm totally content in Christ because Christ gives me the strength to do whatever he has for me to do. So he finds his contentment, his satisfaction, his peace and well-being in Christ, not in health, wealth, prosperity, his circumstances, none of that in Christ. Christ is sufficient and he's sufficient for you in all things, too. So find your contentment in him. Amy, what say you? Well, I have nothing to add. <laughs> you said it so well. And it is, it's, it's very simple to understand when you read the verse in context. So, um, yep, yeah, we, we need to find our strength in Christ alone and uh, not in our own strength for things. So yeah, I, I love that verse. It's, it's a favorite coffee mug of mine as well. <laughs> in context, of course. <laughs> Oh, our, our next twisted scripture that I have here is Romans 8.28. Say it with me. All things work together for good. So very often this verse is used to comfort people who maybe have undergone some sort of crisis or loss. Uh, maybe a well-meaning friend might say, well, God works everything together for good. It, it's like saying to a grieving person, everything happens for a reason. Or, well, you know, God gave you that cancer for a reason for a blessing. Wow. But, you know, saying those things really is not helpful and is often not true. You know, a lot of bad things happen because this is a sinful, fallen world. People get sick. Tragic things happen. Drunk drivers can snuff out the life of your loved one. You know, this idea that everything is good if you just wait long enough isn't true. The truth is these things happen to people that are horrible, and you're never going to find anything good about those things. And God is not an instigator of evil. But this verse used in the right way, this Romans 8.28, is actually true and does not defy logic 
when you read the verse in context. So we're going to spread out back up a little bit. We're going to start at verse 25 now, instead of uh, just jumping to verse 28. And we're going to read through verse 30. Uh, To set the stage, Paul is talking to the Roman church about salvation. And he says this, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's the longer uh, version of this verse, the longer context. Paul is telling the church that those who love God can trust his goodness, his power, his will to work out all things for our good, whether we think it's good or not. It's all for God's glory. And that is good. And But it's not necessarily for our enjoyment. That's not what it's saying. The promise that God works all things together for good does not mean that all things are good. Some things that happen to us, like I said, are bad. But I think about the life of Joseph. His brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery, and eventually he gets thrown into prison. You know, so many of these these bad events that probably seemed awful to Joseph at the time, and they were, but those circumstances are the things that God used to work together for his good. He does that in our lives too. Um, We may not notice it. We may not even get to see it. But if he does allow us to look back and see it, we can truly say that he is good. But even if we don't see the end result, we need to trust that he sees the big picture and that he has his master plan. Michelle, any anything to add to that? I just always think um, when I'm considering that passage, how much hope it gives me that no matter what happens in my life, it has a purpose. God is using it to sanctify me or he is using it to uh, help me to be a godly witness to someone else or to set a good example to someone else. And I just think, you know, sometimes I say when I'm teaching about suffering in a, in a conference, sometimes I'll tell the ladies, you know, when you, everybody suffers. It's just a question of whether you're going to suffer with Jesus or without Jesus. And when you suffer with Jesus, you only suffer once. You suffer because of the situation that's going on or the, the, the circumstances. You suffer without Jesus. You suffer twice because you suffer from the circumstances or the situation. And then you suffer from the lack of hope and the lack of purpose in, in your suffering. And I just, you know, I just think about people who suffer or are persecuted or whatever goes bad in their life. Um, when they don't have Jesus, because there there is no purpose to whatever they're going through, at least from their own perspective. Now, we know that hopefully, you know, th- yeah. that that person will um, go through that suffering and be brought to her knees and get saved or something like that. But, um, well, I guess there isn't really anything like that, but, but we'll get saved and we'll come to know Christ. Um, but um, I, I just think it's so hopeless, you know, when when people don't when people are not saved, they do not have that hope that God is doing this for a reason, whatever this suffering situation is, and that it's for their gl- good and his glory. And when we are suffering as Christians, we know that God is using whatever that situation is for something good for us or for our situation and for his glories. And and I think that really helps us get through it 
better and easier and and to have hope in those terrible situations. So yeah, one thing that always helps me. Oh, yeah. And one thing that that always helps me is just to you know, kind of camp out in uh, the book of James once in a while and just mm-hmm. remember what suffering is and who it's for. Um, it, it's not only to glorify God, but it's to strengthen us as well. So uh, those trials, nobody likes to go through them. But um, but they are for his good and his his complete purposes in shaping us to be like Christ. That's absolutely true. Well, my final twisted scripture for the night is Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is another favorite one that the egalitarians like to twist. This does not mean wives don't have to submit to their husbands. It does not mean wives submit to your husbands and husbands, you submit right back to your wives. It does not mean everybody submits to everybody in the church. So the pastors and elders are on exactly the same footing as the church members and that women can preach or pastor or teach men the scriptures or exercise any kind of authority that they want to. Okay, that's what it does not mean. If you're looking at Ephesians 5.21 on the page in your Bible, you're probably seeing a few things that tip you off right away that this verse does not mean any of those things. And the first thing you'll probably notice, at least I hope you will, is that the word submitting starts with a lowercase s. Now, think back to second grade language arts. A sentence always starts with what kind of letter? That's right, class, a capital letter. Here's a great hermeneutical tip for you. When you see a verse that starts with a lowercase letter, that verse is starting in the middle of a sentence. Back up to the beginning of the sentence and read the whole sentence, ignoring the verse markings so that you can read and grasp the complete thought. Read sentences, not verses. In this case, that means backing up to all the way to verse 18 because Paul likes these really long sentences. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to back up to, he couldn't help it. It was in Greek. He didn't know it was going to be this long in English. <laughs> so um, don't want to be too hard on Paul there. He was, he did a really good job writing these things. But anyway, um, we're going to back up to verse 18. Here we go. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, do you see anything about wives and husbands in there? Of course not. So this passage obviously has nothing to do with wives wives and husbands submitting to each other in marriage. He's talking to and about the church. So that blows the whole marriage twisting part of it out of the water. But the second thing you'll notice on the page is that this verse, Ephesians uh, 5.21, comes right before Ephesians 5.22 through 33. And what's that passage all about? It's about marriage. And how does verse 22 kick things off? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Boom, baby. That's all she wrote. Okay. But he is talking to and about the church, right? So maybe this is saying that women can be pastors and there's no authority in the church, right? Uh Uh-uh. Okay. Remember back to the beginning of this episode when Amy gave those great hermeneutical questions to ask about a passage? One of them was, are there other passages of scripture that clearly disprove my interpretation of the passage? So if your interpretation of this passage is that women can preach, pastor, teach men the scriptures, hold authority over men in the church, well, the answer to that question is, yes, there are other passages that imp- that disprove your interpretation. 1 Timothy 2.11 through 3.7 clearly refutes that idea, and we dealt with that passage in uh, part one of this series. Or if your interpretation of this passage is that pastors and elders are on exactly the same footing as church members and nobody has more authority than anybody else, then the answer to that question, are there other passages of scripture that clearly disprove my interpretation of the passage? The answer to that question is also yes. That is clearly refuted by Hebrews 13, 17a. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You obey and submit to people who are in authority over you. Pastors and elders are the God-ordained authorities in the local church. Okay, so we know what Ephesians 5.21 doesn't mean. 
What does it mean? Well, here's a great, another great hermeneutical tip. Use your cross-references. The cross-reference I have listed in my Bible for Ephesians 5.21 is Philippians 3.2. So we flip back over to Philippians, and Philippians 3.2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we look at Ephesians 5.21 in light of what Philippians 3.2 says, and Philipp, uh, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, simply means that in the fellowship of believers, we're to humble ourselves, we're to put our selfish desires aside and put others first. And that's pretty much the opposite of every twisting of this verse that people have come up with. Amy, any thoughts on that one? No, that's usually how uh, people twist that that scripture, um, you know, bringing it right to marriage when that's not what it's about. And uh, I, I love how you kind of wrapped it up there about, uh, you know, submitting in humility to one another. It's not about our flesh or what we want. And I, I think, you know, we can all think of people in churches we've been at in the past where, you know, somebody will uh, invariably be kind of a my way or the highway kind of person. And that's, I think, what Paul was addressing there is that we're supposed to uh, not have our way, but submit to our brothers and sisters in Christ. May you let them go first. Uh, you know, the first shall be last to be a servant. Exactly. So that it not a doormat, but a servant. Yeah, that, that would right? be a good cross reference for that verse too. Yes. All right. Well, I have a last twisted scripture here for this episode, and that is Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keeps the law happy is he. Okay. Now, this is a verse that many Christians have used out of context, claiming that it provides a biblical basis for the importance of vision in leadership. You know, this passage is used most notably by leaders within the church growth movement. Uh, I actually came from a church like this early on, where this verse was used to tell us that we must follow our pastor's prophetic vision that he felt God gave him or we would perish as a church. Not as people, we weren't going to die, but you know, our, our church would probably come to an end if we didn't follow uh, his, his dream that God gave him. But this verse doesn't say anything about following a man with a plan or a dream at all. There are a whole lot of pastors out there today who do use this verse wrongly uh, as a kind of a weapon of power. Uh, Rick Warren has done this, T.D. Jakes, Steve Furtick, Joyce Meyer, and I'm going to just say, I'm putting the bunny ears, the quotation marks around the word pastor here, uh, especially on that <clears throat> last one. But they all say that we must follow the teacher's or leader's vision because the Bible Bible says so. So to do otherwise would be disobeying God. What the Bible is really saying is that we must follow God's word, as in keepeth his commands. So Proverbs 11.14 puts it this way, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now that verse is a little hard to twist and make it say that we need to be towing the line and keeping with some pastor's ambiguous dream. Here's how vision casting works. It's actually borrowed from a worldly business leadership technique in the corporate world. First, uh, the vision statements have to be cast. Then they're followed up with mission statements that are crafted to serve the vision. And then a list of values is created to serve that mission. Employees then have to come up with SMART goals to support their supervisor's SMART goals, and they have to support their vice president's SMART goals, and it all funnels up, and they make their way to the top to support the head boss's vision. Okay, uh, if you're wondering what SMART goals are, these were developed back in 1981. I think I was just graduating high school back then, 41 years ago. And it's actually, SMART goals is actually an acronym for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, Time Bound. Okay, so after that, after you get all the SMART goals, you know, that leads up to your mission and your vision, after that, a boatload of programs is usually developed to serve all the values, and then you have to round up an army of volunteers, uh, and they have to be inspired to carry it all forward in the name of the leader's vision. Wash, rinse, repeat, usually annually. It's exhausting. I can tell you this because I've lived through it 
annually many years ago. And, uh, it, you know, what's the mission going to be this year? What's the vision that the pastor's going to get? You know, how come it always happens in January? Does God really schedule it that way? Listen, ladies, God has already given your pastor his marching orders. Preach the word in and out of season. You have one job, pastor. And church, you have a job too. Go and make disciples. Those are your marching orders. But instead, we're following the vision cooked up by a pastor who is supposed to be a teacher and a shepherd. 1 Timothy 1.7 says that such teachers have wandered away from sound doctrine into vain discussion without understanding either what they are te- saying or the things about which they are making strong assertions. Second Peter 3.16 says that they are ignorant or unstable, twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. The verse they use to defend their false teaching condemns false teaching. Isn't that funny how that works out? So let's read this verse again in context. I'm going to use the ESV, and it says this, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So in other words, the vision is prophetic vision. And I'm going to end with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, because we are not getting prophetic visions for the church today. And it says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Talking about Jesus here, right? Oh, boy. So that's the twisting there. Michelle, can you add anything for us here? I just, you know, as you're talking about all of those things that are involved in vision casting, I was just thinking, you know, these people have taken this one verse out of context and they've built an entire like empire around it, you know, with all these materials that they're selling and all of these, you know, probably workshops that they were teaching pastors how to cast vision and all of that. And I was also reminded, remember years ago when, when Chris Rosebro was teaching about vision <laughs> casting on his um, podcast on, on Pirate Christian Radio uh, on Fighting for the Faith. You're going to sing that song, I, uh, and, it, and it, he would play that little song, you know, blinding eyes Double when I'm vision. casting vision yeah. full of lies when I'm casting vision. You know? <laughs> I always used to love that song and it was so funny. Know, and, you know, he had some great songs <laughs> like that. But what you're saying is so true. I mean, Jesus, going back to Ephesians 5 that we were just talking about a few minutes ago, we were talking about verse 21, but in verses 22 through 33, uh, it talks about marriage, but it also talks about that Christ uh, purchased the church with his own blood. You know what that means? He purchased it. Yeah. He bought it. It mm-hmm. belongs to him. He's the only one who has the right to cast vision for the church, just like you were explaining. We don't cast vision. It's his church. He casts the vision for the church. And he has already done that but with all of the instructions that he has given us for the church in the New Testament. And, you know, as far as a lot of churches will have their pas- their pastors do these vision statements or whatever. And then they have mission statements too. Well, you don't need a mission statement either because he's already given us the great commission. That is the mission statement for the church. You know, we're to, to teach, to go and to evangelize and to teach and disciple and, and all of that. And so we just, you know, a lot of times we just make things so complicated and we don't need to do that. We just need to be in Scripture and do the simple things that Scripture tells us to do. A lot of times I think we think, you know, it's got to be so big and so fancy and we got to do all these, you know, climb every mountain, cross every stream, you know, all that uh, for Jesus. And we yeah. don't. We just need to do the simple things that he tells us to do in his word the way he tells us to do it. So... Yeah, there's really no way that you can rest in in the the peace of Christ when you've got a to-do list on this vision casting thing that's a mile long and you're just scrambling to meet deadlines and come up with these goals and and programs and I I remember the last time that I was in uh that particular church that was casting the vision one year and uh, it was all around a ship heading back out to sea that had been in port for a while and uh, and that's what the pastor said he said 
the the vision that I have is that we're going back out to sea on our mission. And uh, and so we had to come up with graphic designs of oceans and videos of ships going out to sea. And it, and it was just crazy. And we ended up, and, and the verse that comes to mind is being, you know, tossed to and fro by these, by vanity. So I, you know, tossed upon the waves. And, and I think that's really what happens. And, and it really causes things like burnout and, and people end up not only just quitting their jobs on staff at churches, but they end up leaving altogether. They don't, they don't come back. And that, that's really sad. They, they stop learning about Christ and they, the love grows cold. So I, I just want to really caution against, uh, twisting that particular scripture. All scriptures should be read without twisting them, of course. But, uh, I, I think we've hit, hit on the main ones, Michelle. Yeah. And, you know, another thought that comes to mind too, when, when you're thinking about things like vision casting or just a lot of these things that we talk about that have to do with, um, being seeker driven or, or, uh, new apostolic reformation and things like that. How does that play in the underground church in Korea, in North Korea? You know, do, do they do that? Does or that China work for them? Or, China? Yeah. yeah. What, what about the New Testament church, Anywhere. you know, where they were, they were hiding in their homes, you know, fearing to be martyred and things like that. And you think they were worried about ships, you know, ca- having little graphics of ships <laughs> oh, yeah. to, to cast on the wall or whatever. And, and listen, those graphics were expensive. That's right. I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think as, as the days go by and the time of Christ's return gets nearer, we're going to cut out a lot of this stupidity and a lot of these unbiblical man-made programs and traditions mm-hmm. and things like that. And we are, we are going to get down to what is really important. And if we're going to do that eventually, why don't we just do it now? Right. I mean, let's let's just do church according to script. You want a vision statement? Get your vision into the word of God. Okay, put your vision on the pages of the Bible. Okay. (sighs) Okay. well, before (sighs) I get completely off the edge here, that's before (laughs) Michelle pops a vein. (laughs) (laughs) That is going to wrap things up for this episode of A Word Fitly Spoken in this final episode in our Twisted Scripture series. Be sure to join us next time. Lord willing, we are going to have an interview with a very special guest, someone many of you will be familiar with, and lots of us have found his ministry to be very helpful. In the meantime, check out the show notes for this episode, and uh, you'll find lots of helpful links there. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and help keep us on the air by donating via PayPal or Patreon. And you can do all of that at our website, awordfitlyspoken.life. And until next time, handle God's word rightly, unashamedly, and in context, and walk worthy.